my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It's brand new Season 2. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. What's up? I'm Laura Carrenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. Welcome back to Adlandia post Thanksgiving holiday. We had a good Thanksgiving holiday. We hope you all had a good Thanksgiving holiday. Our producer had a very good Thanksgiving holiday. Big congrats. He is now fiancéd. Is that how you say it? Fiancéd. Congratulations, Ryan. Big congrats to Ryan and Anne. And joining us for this episode is Bob Pittman in our virtual studio. And I think this is a note taker. And it's something that you probably want to like rewind. I did at least. Because what Bob talks about through his career, he's a hit maker. He is the hit maker, MTV, Six Flags, AOL, iHeart, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. Bob talks in really simple terms about things that are not simplistic. And so it's a really good episode to truly think about what he's saying and think about how this person has taken, you know, media companies from nothing to AOL. I think he said when he left was 50% of the internet market 
in the United States and definitely for all of us, a household name. I think this episode was very grounding in terms of the practice and what we do. It very clearly brings it back to the reason I got into marketing in the first place. And that's to find ways to connect with people and deliver on a need through the power of communication. The constant push-pull I, I was having as we were going through this conversation was we've gotten so hung up on the delivery mechanism that in some regards, I think we forget what we're delivering. And when Bob breaks down, to your point, Alexa, the simplicity of putting a clear message in front of consumers that delivers on that need and doing it over and over and over again. And then you'll hear, he says, the most effective tactic we have is word of mouth. Nothing that relies on technology or a platform or a channel. It's the companionship and the communication and the connection and the interaction that people have that moves them to take action. It's what products today are built on. It is peer-to-peer. It is putting the product at the center of a community. And I could not agree more. And one of the things, everything you said, I agree with. One of the things that I would punch out in addition is that Bob wasn't saying 250 GRPs is the way. This is tried and true. He was actually saying, question that, break that. That's breakable. But what you're talking about, that's unbreakable. And that, I believe, is what Bob was talking about. It solidified, almost re-verified the work that this industry and so many practitioners and listeners of the show are doing. So before we give away the whole interview, get out your notebooks. We're going to class with Bob Pittman. But before we get to Bob, Laura... We're joined here with our partners from Yieldmo for part two of our four-part series talking about how to make attention actionable. We're here with Lisa Bradner, GM of Analytics, and Teddy Jodi, head of product. So Lisa, Teddy, if making attention actionable is core to Yieldmo's value proposition, how quickly are you acting on the signals that are driving consumer attention? At Yieldmo, one of the ways that we are able to make attention actionable is we are sub-15 minutes. So if we see somebody in a session doing something, we can turn and act on that in under 15 minutes. We're continuing to work to push that number down lower and lower. But I hear people say real time, and what they mean is we're going to batch process it and get back to you in 24 hours. That ain't real time. And that's often not quick enough to really get the data you're after. So how are you competing in the marketplace in that respect, when we have so many different options as you know, media buyers to think about who we line up with to target our audiences uh, in the marketplace. How do you think about the difference in coming to Yieldmo versus potentially going to another data platform? Yieldmo's points of difference, I mean, you know, it really isn't our tagline about making attention actionable. Uh, number one, it's the breadth and depth of the data we collect. We're collecting over 75 signals, a number of them proprietary to understand what's happening. Two, it's the real-time tech that allows us to store and process that data because a lot of people, even if they could collect all that, they wouldn't be able to process it in any kind of quick fashion. And then three, it's the ability to optimize off of that, right? 
um, you know, a lot of people talk about attention as an index or kind of a, you know, you got more attention, yay, you got less attention, boo. Uh, we don't look at it that way. We take that signals and say, how do we optimize the media dollars you're spending right now? We want to get you a bigger bang for your buck. We know that coming out of this year, CMOs are going to find their media budgets flat to cut and their growth targets 10 to 15% up. So they can't just anniversary last year's media plan. We had a client say recently, he said, how am I going to take my MMM from 2019 and apply it to 2021 when 2020 happened in between those, right? It's, it, it's nonsensical. You can't go back to that because we are in a very different world. And tell our listeners what MMM stands for, Lisa. Market mix modeling, one All of right. the classic old school <laughs> So we'll look back six months and three years of data and tell you that newspaper is the number one channel to drive your business from here to eternity. <laughs> it's amazing that we're still talking about that. It is. It is. It, it doesn't make sense when you're saying that I can actually turn a trigger signal to you in 15 minutes. When you think about 15 minute turnaround time, I can't help but think that puts Yieldmo in the driver's seat when it comes to not only making actionable decisions, of course, but also finding opportunities or windows that present contextual relevancy. We think about contextual all the time. And for a couple of reasons, with the death of a third-party cookie, audiences are just going to be harder to find and follow across open web, really across everywhere. Um, but also, we believe that we may be overanalyzing and overspending on all the audience layers to get to what we're trying to get to. And so when we think contextual, it's not just, oh, you're on a car site looking at, and we're going to serve you a car ad. It's about all the signals we can read in that moment to say, who is this person? What are they looking for? What are they reading? What's on the page? Where on the page is it? Everything that's going on and understanding what they're signaling attention to can help you serve the next ad and the next ad and the next ad and really understand in that decision tree should I go left or should I go right? But I think, Laura, the notion of versus reach and frequency is interesting, right? We still need reach, right? If you are a billion-dollar brand and you have to add $100 million to your top-line sales this year, I might find you the perfect group of people who really, 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 really care about your product. But if there are only five of them, there's only, there's only so much they can buy. And this is, for me, where audience strategies start to break down because we're so maniacally focused on, no, no, this is our audience. This, these are the people buying our product. We want to help our customers find additional audiences that they may be overlooking, find places that their audience strategy may be missing because of data degradation, um, or just unveil new opportunities for audiences they haven't thought of, but it turns out are great opportunities for their products. I totally agree. One of the biggest mistakes I see today advertisers make is they um, kind of overly obsess on audience strategies. They spend all their money on the platforms that they can track users, um, they can measure. And it makes sense, especially coming from a world where mixed media modeling or you know doing these big buys and waiting six months later to see if it worked is super frustrating. So having the ability to track and see how your returns come out is, is a huge innovation. But the world is changing and, and um, things are becoming less trackable and they're becoming more expensive. 
So, you know, browsers are limiting this because of privacy controls, and that's a good thing. And places like Facebook are becoming super expensive for brands because, you know, it is trackable. Um, and so I think that smart marketers are, are taking a step back and, and realizing there, there are other strategies to, to, to achieve that reach and to get my message out. And these strategies like contextual that can allow you to infer an audience based on the content. And it just feels better too, you know, and it's not like a stroller following you around the internet on a, you know, in a, a sports site. It, it just feels more appropriate when you're, when you're reading content and the ad just looks like it should be there. Um, and, and combine that with, with attention analytics, the ability to, to see in real time, does this ad resonate with the user? That can be a very powerful strategy that's future-proof and works um, potentially better and, um, and, and more scalable than, than traditional audience buying. Lisa Bradner, Teddy Jwadi from Yieldmo. Thank you for being our partners. Thank you for coming on Atlantia. Thank you for having us. And we're back with chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to the show, Bob Pittman. Hi, Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Laura and I were looking through your career and we were thinking through this and we were like, how did he make the bets he made? I, you know, I think careers and most of life is getting hit on the head with meteors, uh, that things just sort of pop up. And I think the difference that people have is whether you say yes or no. And I'm always up for a big adventure. And so a lot of the things I did at the time seemed to make no sense, but they all turned out fine. And I, but I'm very careful. I will only go do something that has something to do with the consumer because I think my basic skill set is that I, that I focus on and understand consumers. When I was younger, I, I, I claimed I was a sociologist. And so, you know, whether I'm trying to sell them a house or sell them a pay TV service or get them to listen to watch MTV or buy AOL, it's all the same human being and the same laws of consumer behavior uh, are at work. And I think if you understand those, then it allows you a great flexibility of, of you know, jumping to a lot of different uh, situations. Do you think that marketers today need to be more sociologists or less sociologists in the consumer space? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I do a podcast called Math and Magic. And it's and I've always talked about programming and marketing as math and magic, the perfect blend of it. You have to have the analytics. You have to understand what the table looks like. You understand what the framework is. But, you know, if I tell you, oh, I, I know exactly who this person is. I found them all. You go, OK, now what are you going to do? How are you going to motivate them? Just because you found them doesn't mean you can motivate them. That's the magic. And I think you need both. And I've tried to be a practitioner of both. I never graduated from college, but I did do three years of it. And my major was social methods research. And I started my career in radio. And I was one of the first radio programmers to use research. Before that, it was sort of golden gut, or I looked at sales, or the record companies told me what was a good song, or we listened to the request line. And I started doing what we call call out research. And we still do, all these years later, 40, 50 years later, still doing a variation of that in which we survey the consumer about what songs they like and how they like them. In the old days, it was, do you love it? Do you like it? Do you like it so much? that, Or do you not neutral? Do you dislike it? Do you dislike it so much you'll change the channel? Or do you like it but tired of hearing it so much? And, and you know, from that, we would develop how you balance your music and put it together on a radio station. And, and I did that always with, when I was at AOL. 
uh, and every place I've been, I concept test everything and I test my liners. And I don't know if you recall, but there was a time at AOL when we went to unlimited pricing and it was dial up and people got nothing but busy signals. And we sort of had our J&J Tylenol moment. We had one chance to get it right. And uh, so we tested what would work with the consumers. What did they believe about us? What were they looking for? So that when we had that one chance to make a statement, we'd say the right thing. And and also helps define, for example, at, at uh, AOL, we understood two things about consumers. They tend to want to go where everybody goes. You know, if you move to a new town, you very quickly find yourself saying, where does everybody go to get there? Whatever. And we, there's safety in going to number one. But if you just say you're number one, it sounds braggadocious. The other thing we knew was that what was we saw, and it was quite different than everyone else, we didn't think this was about geekiness. We thought it was ease of use. And the future is going to be easy to use. People, as a slur, said, oh, hey, oh, well, that's the internet with training wheels. They didn't understand that was what the consumer wanted to hear, that it was easy. So our, our line became so easy to use, no wonder it's number one. We combine both of those thoughts. And I think that's a, a combination of math and magic, that we understood the math of what they were looking for and how they were there. And from that, crafted an approach, which was, okay, we're going to use the easy, we're going to use the number one, pull them together, tie the two together. And, and you know, as you know, you know, by the time I left AOL, we had 50% of the traffic of the internet in the United States went through AOL. This concept of, of math and magic, you know, in an industry as ours, where seemingly everyone has doubled down on data, and in many cases, it's become sort of a, a commodity in, in many regards, and, and many people are using the same data. Can you talk to us about the magic element? Where do you go, Bob, for the magic time and time again, whether it was figuring out why MTV, why then in that moment and what it would be to pivoting, you know, however many years now into iHeart and and being a mover uh, and shaker within the podcast industry? So it's a really good question. And I think it's it does start with me with the math part. And the math part is not exactly the math that everybody uses today. It's not just clicks and numbers. It's math of understanding what verbatims people say when they're talking about something. For example, years and years ago, when I was a radio programmer, we said we play less commercials. People said, that's not grammatically correct. And I go, yes, but that's what everyone says. And so I think the important thing is understand the language, understand the way the consumer frames the issue and what they're looking at and talk about it from their point of view, not from our point of view about how we built it or what we think it is as a professional. Um, and, and I think on the, on the magic front, it is really opening your mind. Um, I, I read some, you know, great student of, of creativity. And, 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 you know, you read a lot, and I believe this, that you don't come to a creative idea by stepping through some business school kind of points of view. And then here's the answer. That way, the way you get the creative idea is you load your head with all the information. You mull it over, you, and then you forget about it. And one morning when you're in that alpha zone, when you're sort of almost awake or sort of in and out of sleep and awake, or for me, it's when I'm taking a 15-minute hot shower in the morning, and I'm just zoning out, ideas pop in my head. And it's a joke in my family forever. I've run out of the shower, and quick, give me the pen, and just write it all down. It just appears in my brain. And because I know that's how it comes... When I work with agencies, I've 
I don't want the big presentation. I said, you really, really just save all those account people. I don't need to see them. Uh, you'll, <laughs> this will be a much more profitable account for you. I want you to get about three or four different teams to look at exactly the same stuff. Do not have them talk to each other. Do not have someone review their work to figure out what you're going to present to me and then come and present it. And what I'm doing is I'm maximizing the odds that one of those people had the epiphany. And it's those epiphanies that make the difference. You know, the, the line uh, AOL, so easy to use, no wonder it's number one, turned out not to be the line the agency was suggesting. It happened to be in a briefing note they had about the line they wanted to create. And, and I, as soon as I see it, I went, that's it. And, and I think that's when you see magic, you know it. The I Want My MTV came about because George Lois and, um, and Dale Pond, who was his partner, had been promotions director at WNBC Radio with me, who I'd given the account to to come up with this idea of, you know, how are we going to advertise MTV? And we had this problem that the cable operators didn't want to carry us and they wanted us to pay them money. We didn't have it. So we needed some way to use consumer pull to get the consumer to, to demand it. And they had originally this, this uh, commercial of uh, America's becoming a land of cable brats and blah, 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 blah. And in there, it said, call your cable company and say, I want my MTV. I go, wait a minute. That's, that's the line. I want my MTV. Let's recraft. So to me, it's always this iterative process that you can edit, you can play with. But it starts with that creative epiphany. I mean, you look back over your career, were you doing these big swinging innovations or was it more incremental innovation building on itself? I never thought I was doing anything big. People have said to you, I was a disruptor. I never thought I was disrupting anything. I thought I was simply solving a need. Okay, I can identify we need this. Let's go do that. We need this. Let's go do that. The consumer wants this. Let's serve that. But I never thought, wow, I'm going to disrupt everything. I just thought I was following consumers or I was looking for a solution to a particular issue. I did a Math & Magic uh, episode with Fred Seibert, who did the on-air look for MTV, which at that moment in time, you guys are too young to remember, was, no, the, <laughs> was, was this incredible breakthrough look. But the reason we did the look, as Fred and I explored, was because we didn't have the money to do what everybody else was doing, which was look like Star Wars logos, you know, coming from outer space, uh, like the intro to Star Wars. Um, so Fred hit upon the idea. He said, you know, Bob, if we do our version of that, we don't have much money, so ours will look cheap. But if we do something entirely different that no one's ever seen before, then it will just look creative. And, and he was right. And that's what led us to do such a radically different look was because we didn't want to look like anything else. So we couldn't be compared. And people realized we were spending 10% of what our competitors were spending in creating that. Do you think marketers today ask the simple question that you just asked, what is the need? Because I, you know, I would talk to marketers all the time and we've overcomplicated and overcomplicated. we've also... And we've also navel gazed to a point where we don't, we can't even ask the simple questions. I have a pretty strong opinion on it. I'm a research guy. I love data. Um, I think we've gone way too far. Yeah. And I talk to marketers and they're talking about, I've got, I want to target. I want to go to the target. 
and you look at every bit of the research, and I pull this out for people to see sometimes because they get a little lost. I go, you do realize, of course, that most of your buyers are not in your target audience. <laughs> if you think about target audience and about all the research supports that target audience means you have a high density of buyers within this group, but most of your buying is done outside the target. So when you super target to this target that you figured out, you've eliminated everybody else. If you look at people, if you look at the results of companies, and let's go back to like 2008, 2009, 10 years ago, and they shifted their money, tremendous amount of money to, to digital and social where they could absolutely target. Most of those companies, almost all those companies had stagnant sales, stagnant revenue, no revenue growth. And how? They're doing all this super targeting. They're missing everybody else. I look at the example of, of Mark Pritchard at P&G, which is, I mean, gosh, he's such a smart guy. And he, you know, they cut out radio and outdoor almost disappeared from P&G. I think, I think, you know, they weren't even in the top 200 three or four years ago in radio. And suddenly Mark looks at, he needs to cut back his marketing spend, if you remember this moment in time. Yes. Uh, sales have been somewhat stagnant. And so Mark, re, unlike most people say, well, I'm just going to cut everything 10%. Mark re-looked at everything. And he, and he, and he you know, if you mean conversations with him, and he said it publicly too, um, you know, he said, well, let's see, where, where did we take our money from before? And how well did that perform? And wait a minute, now that I really look at it closely, a lot of this digital is not performing. I think the number was he took $200 million out of digital, put money back into radio and outdoor. And I don't remember, you know, you know, remember this, but as soon as he did that, his sales took off. And I think they had something like five or six record quarters uh, of sales. And he moved from not even being in the top uh, 200 radio advertisers to I think he was number one or number two last year. And, uh, and, and, you know, what it, you find, of course, with radio is that, yes, it hit his target, but, and he only paid for the target, but he actually got everybody else. And I think a lot of companies forgot that in the broader reach media that you paid for the target, but you got this extra for free. So people really did hear about it. When we went to digital, and by the way, I started all this at AOL, we convinced people to come do <laughs> digital advertising. But the problem with digital advertising is very powerful in many ways. But the problem with it is you only get the target and no one else hears your message. You've gone dark with those other people. I remember when I ran Six Flags theme parks, when I got to the company, this company was stalled at about 17 million in attendance, had been for 20 years. And as we began to look at it, we looked at the markets and they'd say, well, we really get a high density of buyers from the market and what they call the outer market. They said, well, we don't advertise out there because it's hard to reach those people. And, but I looked at it and it was like, that was all the growth and the growth potential of the company. We we're already fully penetrated internally. So I figured out ways to do cheaper advertising, some national advertising and things like that, which reached this outer market, which they said wasn't quote unquote efficient. And we took the, now we did some other things too, but we took the attendance from 17 million to 25 million. And, and it was unlocking these people that by marketing rules, it didn't work. I also did something there, which I bought a ridiculous weight level. I bought 1500 grips a week, 1500 a week, almost impossible to get. We were the number one advertiser in every market. And we did this for about 10 weeks in seven markets. And my agency said, 
Bob, you're wasting your money. I go, why? They said, your 12 plus frequency is not increasing. And I go, what about my 20 plus frequency? What about my 30 plus frequency? Who said 12 is the magic number? And what I wanted people to do with buying this silly frequency was we were a tarnished, dead eh, product. I wanted people to think everybody was talking about Six Flags. So how did I, how was I going to accomplish that? If I bought enough frequency, I knew that the consumer would get confused and they would think every time I, I turn around, I'm hearing about Six Flags. They think people are talking about it. So they began talking about it. Then I primed the pump of word of mouth. And to me, that's the most effective advertising. Oh, get a conversation going. Today in marketing, still today, I don't think we win unless we're in the conversation. I, and I think every uh, product has to get people to talk about the product. I got to be at that dinner table conversation. I have to have someone telling somebody. And so the way I used it there was massive uh, frequency. And again, I think a lot of these tricks get lost when people are saying, and I've got precisely 7.3 clicks. It's going to be the magic number. And I go, you're kidding yourself. You are, it is not that precise. And you, you human brain and no computer can capture <laughs> all the variables that are necessary for success. And when we try and do it, it's, a, I promise you, a fool's game. Um, and, and so for us, for me as a marketer, yes, I want to know all that information, but I'm realistic about what it can do, what it can't do. One of the things, you know, you're just alluding to, to scale and, and we know iHeart reaches nine and 10 um, Americans. But what we're really enamored with is the audience relationship with the platform, with the hosts, with each other. And thinking about, Bob, how close you are at the community level, locally, 850 stations around the country. Talk to us about the magic in power of local radio at scale. Sure. Let, let, me, let me spend one second because I think it's poorly understood, although I think you guys understand it pretty well, that you know, radio is unlike any other media. Most media is about a program, a piece of information, a piece of quote-unquote content. Radio is not. Radio is companionship. If you think about it, people say, well, your music. I say, well, 25% of our stations don't play any music. How do you explain that? Hmm. Uh, and they and they say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hearing all my favorite songs. I go, well, I just want to hear my favorite songs. The, you know, the minute we put a a tape recorder available, a, 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 we could we didn't have to listen to commercials anymore. I had my own mixtapes. Uh, why did radio do so well? Why does it continue to be big? It turns out, of course, what radio is is companionship. We're keeping people company. We're riding to work with them every day in that empty seat. That's Ryan Seacrest. There, he's a really interesting person. He makes your drive to work pretty interesting as if you had a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, a buddy riding to work with you. And so our job is to talk to the listener as if we're their best friend and they should think they know us. Ryan Seacrest has this wonderful <clears throat> stories he tells about how he knows he's working. He said if he's out with some stars, TV movie stars and the and a fan sees them he said they rush up to the movie star and they go wow can i get my picture taken with you and then they turn to ryan and say hey would you take my picture <laughs> they treat ryan as their friend <laughs> and the movie star is a star and he said the minute that changes i'm dead he knows it and i think the the wonderful thing about radio and what we do 
is that we are having a conversation constantly with the consumer. They listen to the radio, broadcast radio, on an average of about seven times during the day. They're always checking in to see what's going on, like they would with a pal. And they're looking to us to give them that relevant information. And for us, advertising is the, this is probably the most native medium for advertising, because what does advertising tell you to do when it's done well? It tells you what's out there. Uh, you know, I don't think we, as a, as, a, as a concept, I don't think we ever sell anybody anything. I think what we do is we try and connect people, connect people to a product they may like by explaining the product in a way that they understand. And if someone's using radio advertising, their goal ought to be either through the weight level, through the creative they use, where they use it. They want to get the consumer talking about the product. Uh, and I don't care what the product is. There's everything has an has a conversation about it. If you're clever enough, you'll figure out how to activate it. Are the local stations kind of this hidden jewel that iHeart <laughs> has? Do you think about that, especially in today's world where people have scattered from cities, uh, gone out to the suburbs, the local community is really key. Like, Are you thinking about using those local stations in a different way or how important they are to the kind of overall asset of iHeart? It's really 850 brands. Absolutely. We, we treat, and by the way, we treat the 850 brands like Pixar treats their movie brands. And our Pixar brand is iHeartRadio. Yeah. And if people know one of our radio stations at an iHeartRadio station, the quality score goes up about 20 points, just like I imagine the animated film goes up about that if you know it's a Pixar film. But I would say, as opposed to being a, a hidden jewel, it's sort of hidden to the advertising business because that's not what they talk about all the time, but it's actually the foundation of what we do. Um, that everything is built on that radio station has a relationship with a group of, of, of consumers who are in the tribe of that radio station. That radio station speaks to them. It's an organizing principle. It's part of, and my favorite radio station is Z100. My favorite radio yeah. station is, you know, is uh, Kiss FM. My favorite radio station is whatever. And so it's part of your life and it defines who you are to a certain degree. And we take that responsibility very seriously. We're actually regulated by the Federal Communications Commission, the federal government. We have standards on what we can and cannot say. And we will lose our license if we violate that. So we are the safest media. We and, and broadcast television, which has the same restrictions, are probably the safest media out there uh, in terms of that. We also take the responsibility. We're actually licensed to serve the community. And we actually believe that. So when something like Hurricane Sandy was barreling towards New York, Z100 stopped playing music and talked about evacuation. After the hurricane hit Panama City, our stations down there were the only media on the air. And most of the cell coverage was down. So we became critical to tell people where you go, where you get your blankets, how you get help, where the medical care is, where you can get temporary housing. When the floods hit Houston, I was listening to our station on IR radio. I was out in LA and listening to it. And they were, had people on the air saying, oh, well, I'm on top of my house here. And they go, okay, describe your house and where you are. How many people are there? Now, are there any disabled people there? And they were saying, okay, who's got a boat? Because if you remember, the, yeah. the government didn't have enough boats, so they enlisted private people with boats. They were putting people together with people with boats 
so that they could get people evacuated. And that became serving the community. Now, in good times, we're playing music, we're having a good time, we're doing whatever. But when they need us, we're there. During COVID, we've done some very important work with getting information out and helping people get through it. And with the, the unfortunate, the tragic killing of, of George Floyd, um, we had a last year we were looking at our radio station, our portfolio and saying, you know, we've got some stations we're not we're not doing enough with. We need to do something bigger. And we got them all over the country. We could do something for really one big national idea. And we we're looking at opportunities and realize that the black community had zero, zero, not one, not even one uh, news, all news service. They had talk services, they had talk shows, except no all news service. Where's the 1010 wins? Where's my CBS News Radio 88? Um, and so we set about building one. And then COVID came along, ad sales go down, we cut costs, we put it on the shelf. George Floyd killing happens. And Tony Coles, who was the executive internally, who was really developing this with a couple of other folks, reaches out and he said, Bob, I know we've cut costs. I know we furlough people. I know every penny counts, but the country needs this and they need it right now. So we go, you know what? Right. Talk to the board of directors. We all talk amongst ourselves and we say, no matter what it does economically, we're going to launch this. And we're going to launch the Black Information Network. And we, as part of it, we said, you know, the problem with news being ad supported is that they then will need to get a rating because it's all cost per thousand, right? And if and I was I, I was responsible for CNN part of my portfolio when I was COO of uh, of Time Warner when Fox came along, and we had lots of discussions about whether we should also do sort of opinion news, take a position. And at that moment, we decided no, we're going to be really balanced news. And as you know, Fox ran away with the ratings. So we know that if you if you want a rating in news, the way you do it is you basically do clickbait headlines. You do clickbait news. You you get people's blood pressure up. You sort of sensationalize stuff. Don't tell them the whole thing. Sort of slant that story a little bit to get them riled up because that gets a rating. Right. And we wanted to figure out a way not to do that. So we hit upon this idea and we reached out to, and we were limited to 10 companies, said, come be founding partners with us. Let's develop this service as a authoritative, fair, and balanced news source that always covers the Black community perspective. And so we came up with a model of, we found these founding partners, fantastic companies that shared our mission, and we together came together to go to the Black Information Network and launch it. And oh, by the way, from the time Tony said, let's do it, till the time it was on the air, I think it was four weeks. Wow. And, you know, when I was talking to some of these founding partners, say, yeah, I like that idea. Now, when are you talking about launch? That's in two weeks. They two weeks. Wait a minute. Uh, we never operated in two weeks. And it was, but we all came together and moved at a speed we normally move. But to me, that's the power of radio. We can do things immediately. We can do it quickly. Yeah. Hurricane Sandy's heading this way. We can drop the programming literally in a second and start talking about something new. We don't have to get camera crews out there or do anything else. We, we, we're connected. Yeah, I, I, well, I actually think, by the way, congratulations on that, because I actually think it is a big deal. You know, when I think of iHeart and iHeart Audio, I also think of you as a talent network as well. Right. You're almost a talent network. Have you and your kind of leadership team talked about what the future 
of talent in audio sounds like, looks like, etc. Yeah, it is. It looks like the entire community because we reach 90% of Americans. And our view is if we reach 90% of Americans, we ought to be, that, that diversity ought to be represented with us on air. And uh, so we look for people from all walks of life. And, and not only am I talking gender, race, I'm also talking liberal, conservative. I'm talking progressive. I'm talking about young, old, um, suburban, rural, uh, urban, that we need to cover it all. And when we make decisions and when we talk to the community, we need to sound like the community. And if you're going to be authentic, you have to be real. It has to be of the community. And so that's a, a really important thing for us. And we continue to strive and work on that. And we also work on developing talent. Um, we have talent coaches that help sort of people reach their potential. Uh, we have so many radio stations that we can use and such a career path that it's hard to imagine somebody wants a career on the air, you know, being someone's friend, being uh, this kind of personality that could say, oh, I'd rather be anywhere else, uh, that this is the place to be. We take it seriously. Uh, and we also know that no matter who we have on the air, we need to be building the next generation and we need to be listening to them. You know, the, the, the biggest advantage I have and the biggest drawback is I've been around a long time. <laughs> I, I started MTV when I was 27. I'd already had a great career at, at NBC Radio uh, starting at age 20, programming their stations out in Chicago, and then went to WNBC in New York to program them. And, and but and so I have a lot of pattern recognition, a lot of experience to bear, but I also understand that I'm not of the moment. And since I'm not of the moment, I need to listen to the equivalent of Bob Pittman at 27. I, I, I work for a man named Steve Ross, who's this great entrepreneur who built Warner Communications at the time Warner. And I was the young guy that feeding him sort of fresh ideas. And I, I, somebody, I forgot who it was, was talking about the mentor program where they actually do the reverse thing. They have young people mentor their senior executives um, as opposed to the senior executives mentoring the young people. And they mentor them so they know what's really going on, what the world really looks like today, not yesterday. And I think that's so critical to the work you do, the work we do, and all of us that are in media, communications, advertising, where we're trying to reach the public and to have a dialogue with them and have a conversation. What you said about pattern recognition is so interesting. And I love we'd love to talk about audio in general, going from radio to podcasting. Mm -hmm. What has the podcasting space allowed you to do potentially that, that radio has limitations in, but also areas of where it can bring the future of audio? Sure. I, I, it's a great question. Let me, before I go there, I'm just going to do one thing because we keep talking audio. They're really two pieces of audio and they actually are radically different. They're, they're mirror images of each other. One is the music, just my music, uh, my music collection. Uh, that used to be a, a box of CDs or LPs or 45s. Um, and today it is your streaming service, Apple Music or Spotify, uh, probably. And, uh, but when I listen to my music, I'm escaping the world. I'm putting myself in a one-to-one -one relationship with my music. I'm putting, putting a cone of silence out. I don't know what, want to know what's going on in the outside world. 
I don't want information. I don't want a joke. I don't want weather. I don't want the time. I just want to go and it makes me feel a certain way. Radio is the opposite of that. It is companionship. It's when you want to know what's going on in the world. And so I think you think about those two as very different uh, pieces. And, and by the way, every time we get close to trying to do something in the music collection, we tried to do on-demand music on the iHeartRadio app. And people say, well, that's not you. What, what is that? <laughs> you know, that, I'm looking for radio here. And uh, I'm looking for that companionship. And so when we look at podcasting, and, and by the way, we've been watching it for years, sort of trying to understand how big it could be and what it, how it could grow, is I think podcasting is sort of Netflix. Uh, and what do I mean by that? I think Netflix is TV on demand, uh, that really the TV networks probably should have started it because initially it was built on uh, just a replay of stuff you would see on TV, except I could have it on demand. I could get it when I wanted it. And, uh, and and that is really, when I look at radio, like TV had a limitation of how much they could put out there because it was linear. I've only got 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. So I, I do the math. I only have so much programming on the air. But there's programming like that that could be on that network if I had time for it. That was Netflix. I think in our case, I think a podcasting is still an extension of companionship. And what we know about podcast is podcasting is completely host driven. It is, you don't have a great host. I don't care what your content is. You're not going to have a hit podcast. And so for us, it was the same radio experience, except it was on demand. It was not necessarily in real time, but every show that's a podcast could really be on the radio. Uh, and sometimes some of our podcasts actually are the radio shows delivered on demand. And, uh, we have, uh, just, said, okay, that's our that's an important part of our future. Yes, we want to keep radio going, but there's a whole new on-demand feature. Let's don't let Netflix happen somewhere else, as happened with the broadcast networks, it'd be a problem. Rather, let's do what the broadcast networks should have done, which is basically started their streaming services themselves with all this other content. And that's what we did. And today we're the number one podcaster. We've been the number one commercial podcaster. And we have a lead of about two to one over the next largest commercial podcaster. I think podcasting <laughs> continues to grow. It, this gr has grown much faster than streaming music did. So I think we're, we're looking at something the consumer wanted. Uh, we're looking at a service that's, that you know, we built the infrastructure to deliver. Um, and I think it continues to grow and be an increasingly part of the important part of the media landscape. And by the way, what you do in terms of engagement with an advertiser in podcasting, you couldn't do anywhere else. You know, Bob, I'm sitting here going like, what business is Bob Pittman in, right? Because I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that you're a town hall, you're a local community center, you're an IP generator, you're a creative discovery engine. Like there's all these businesses and it just so happens that you know, uh, a broadcast radio station or a streaming platform is is how you put that work out in the world or, or put those conversations out in the world. It's really interesting to think about them. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here imagining, you know, your sales team's pitch deck. And I'm saying like, is it an audio company? Because when you start to really pull apart the businesses that you're in, it's really not audio or, or, or talk radio or, or music. or It's really about the community and the creators at the heart of it. And that really unlocks all of these different businesses um, to me that iHeartMedia then becomes. 
We, we also tie it together. I mean, you, you bring up a very good point because I guess we really don't even think of it as audio. We think of it as companionship. The best way we do it is having audio conversations. But when the we did all these big events and then the lockdown happens and we realize the consumer is feeling very isolated. So we work with Fox and say, you know what? We think we can get these big stars to do this living room concert one night shoot their stuff on iPhones. And first you go, iPhones? Who's going to watch iPhones on TV? And we we get Elton John to host it. You know, Alicia Keys kicked it off. We had all these great performers in that in that one show. And we did it instead of doing the award show, which got canceled because we obviously couldn't get push people into a theater and do an award show. And we used that slot with, uh, with Fox to do it. And we really didn't know what we were going to do, but we knew companionship is very powerful and iHeart knows how to do it. So we did the iHeart uh, uh, radio uh, living room concert with Fox. And it's interesting. We raised, I think the total was $16 million in that night. And it's important just to demonstrate the power of it at that time. And I think it still may be the highest rated Sunday night entertainment show on TV for the year. Wow. Well, we produce that. It's TV. But we didn't say think it's TV versus radio. We thought it's companionship. It's us connecting with this audience and this community. And uh, and you're right. It, it, it so happens we're audio. But the right. essence of what we're doing is something that's probably more refined than audio. Where do you take this? Because we're not out of COVID. I think we we all think, right, it's going to take a long period of recovery. Live sports is is in question. Moments where community has rallied in mass is in question in general, physically, on broadcast, etc. How are you thinking about taking companionship or are you thinking about taking that idea of companionship even further, even further than what you're describing? Yeah, I think a lot of it is about um, how we use it and what I go back to. What's the need right now? Uh, when the protests came up over social justice, racial equality, uh, you know, following the killing of, of George Floyd, we brought instead of, you know, say, OK, it's hard to get out there and do what we would normally do. We did these virtual town halls. Uh, there was even a moment in which the Breakfast Club chatted with Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, Charlemagne the God, and the Breakfast Club and Rush Limbaugh talking about this, that there was a moment, in, you know, in which. The country needed a conversation, and so we had to rally to provide the conversation. And we did them in local markets. We did some national ones, uh, and we did them in all, sort of all flavors. And I think that's what we have to do is is just listen for the moment. And I, by the way, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There may be something tomorrow in which we need to change whatever we're doing, and we will and we can. And I think having that attitude of we will and we can is really what makes the company great and which makes us invaluable to the consumer. And over time, I think a consumer values us because of the cumulative impact of what we've done. And I think that's what's exciting about the company. And that's exciting about the work we do. And by the way, when we deal with our advertising partners, you know, yes, we'll sell you some spots. But that's the least interesting thing we can do. Right. What we can really can do is talk about what are you trying to do and how do we combine your smarts and our smarts, what you know and what we know, and your assets and our assets, 
and figure out how to make this thing work. And, uh, and, and I like it, one, because of the service we do. I also like it just because I'm a very curious person and I like making things. And there's nothing more interesting to me than getting involved with one of our clients who's got a particular need and brainstorming and coming up with these ideas. Because I think all of us in this business, probably everyone listening and certainly you folks, are we're turned on by creating. And uh, it just gives us satisfaction. It's like uh, that's what I wake up in the morning to do. And I think we have this bed with this huge reach, all these markets, all these product lines where we sort of don't run out of territory. We can, there's a lot we can create. And if someone comes to us with a brilliant idea, we can just say, sure, we can do it. We'll, we'll say yes and then figure out how to do it later. This industry sometimes gets held back in what you just described, getting turned on by making things that people need. Isn't that our job? Make yeah. things people need. <laughs> like it's that freaking simple. And it's explained stuff to people. You know, what's the biggest problem with all the products that we're all involved with? They don't know enough about it. We know so much about it because we make the product. We fail to comprehend that the consumer doesn't know anything about it. In the in the old days when I was a radio programmer, and a, one of the first things I observed was at the time a disc jockey was saying, I'm sick of playing this record, is about the time the consumer goes, what's that new song you're playing? Yeah, yeah. We are way ahead of the consumer, and we have a body of knowledge the consumer doesn't have. And we as creative people, the job we have is how do we, I, I go back to, how do we connect people? Yep. With the music industry, we say our job is connect the music to the fans, the people that will like it. With an advertiser, our job is to connect that message to a consumer who will be responsive to that message and explain in a way that gets them excited about it as opposed to turned off to it. Bob, we, we know that you're um, in, in the subscription business and throughout this conversation, just thinking about the word companionship and, and the emphasis on the relationships that you have around your IP. Do you see a world where iHeart continues to move into subscription and starts to look at different options and going direct to consumer, not as a, as a replacement of ad supported, but potentially finding new ways um, to give consumers experiences directly um, experiences so unique um, that they would want to pay for them um, because they want to stay engaged in that conversation with that community, with that talent, for example. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I did at AOL, we were one of the great success stories in subscription. Um, and we had, when I left, about 35 million subscriptions to AOL. And uh, we, we, unlike anybody else on the internet, made money on our, our subscription revenue. Um, I, but I think it's we got to be careful with subscription. People jump to the conclusion of, I'll do subscription. Everybody will want it. Actually, they only want subscription if it makes sense. And when, when I say it makes sense is, is it cheaper? Is it more efficient? Is it more effective than what I was doing? You know, Netflix was a huge hit with the subscription because it was so much cheaper to pay that one price for a subscription than it was to buy all the product a la carte. Um, but I've seen people in the podcast business go, I'm going to start charging people for podcasts. I remind them, I go, podcasts are free today. Like, what business can you tell me where something was free and people start charging for it? And the consumer goes, great, that's a great idea. Uh, none. Um, and so I think, you know, if we could find a subscription business where we were doing a service to someone by providing a subscription, 
not providing a subscription because it'd be good for us. By the way, who wouldn't want a recurring revenue stream every month hitting a credit card the time and time again? But I think you have to be realistic about it that a business need is not a substitute for a consumer need. And if I could find something where I was serving the consumer by giving them a subscription, I'd jump in in a second. But I think too many people today, as I look out there, are trying to cram a subscription down the consumer's throat. And they are surprised that the consumer doesn't buy it. So I think the really successful ones, I mean, I think Netflix had a great model. I think Disney Plus is great. Who doesn't know those brands? Uh, Who doesn't know what Star Wars is or what Marvel is or what Pixar is? And putting that all together, I go, I got it. And what? I don't have to pay each individual one. And they're all there. Sign me up. It's a service to the consumer. And I think we have to be respectful of consumers and say, if it's not a service, don't kid yourself. I'm just thinking about all of your festivals and how unique those are. Is there an iHeart Festival subscription that I'd want to pay for five concerts? We can brainstorm, but yeah, just thinking about the service, the service note, like really absolutely, resonates. Absolutely. And I think those are the kinds of service. If I go, I'm going to go to every one of them. I can't keep track of them and it costs me X and you give me a good deal and I subscribe and I'm a member of the whole thing. That's a service. And I think you're exactly right. But I think any, it, but you know, we're just in a world right now. We were talking about people sort of overanalyzing analysis, you know, paralysis, uh, analysis, paralysis. And now we're getting into, you know, sort of subscriptions, everything. Not for everybody. (laughs) Most cases, it's not. You're exactly right. You have to find the opportunity where people go, yeah, that's great. Please, thank you for doing that for me. What would people be surprised to know about Bob Pittman that they don't currently know? Well, look, I'm from Mississippi, a preacher's son, Um, not a college graduate. I'm not one of those fancy educated people. (laughs) Um, it's, uh, I used to ride motorcycles a lot. I got to the end of my sixties and I decided I ride motorcycles a little too recklessly and my reflexes aren't quite what they were. So time to give that up. I'm still flying, fly helicopters and airplanes, um, have been flying for 50 years. I actually got in the, in the media business because I was a plane nut as a kid and I needed money to pay for flying lessons because I could solo when I was 16 and the only job I could find in a small rural Mississippi town was as a radio announcer in WCHJ in Brookhaven, Mississippi. So, uh, so those are it. I go to Burning Man every year, uh, and except for this year, sadly. Um, and uh, love the travel. And uh, that's probably it. Other than that, I'm a boring guy. <laughs> I doubt. I I think we doubt that. We want to do a quick speed round question. Uh, what's your best learning from Burning Man? community. Um, open your mind um, and uh, free think is is uh, an improvement over life. How do you do free think with your teams, like in a corporate setting? Yeah, I, I think free think is there are no bad ideas. You may we, we may not do them and we may eliminate them eventually. But every time you start thinking, you start the wheels going. When I was at MTV, we did these great promotions. I don't know if you remember them of the Lost Weekend with Van Halen or the uh, John Cougar Mellencamp Paint paint the House Pink promotion, the One Night Stands. Every one of them began as a joke. Like, let's let's buy a house. You go, wait a minute, we could buy a house. That could be fun. (laughs) Uh, Or we were talking about the Lost Weekend and we were joking about some of our employees that would have their Lost Weekends. And that joke turned into the Lost Weekend with Van Halen. And so I think when you 
I remember that because every idea, once you start ideating, stupid, crazy ideas can turn into very important ideas. And, uh, and I think sometimes we try and start with an important idea as opposed to just start the ideation. Just start talking. There is no bad idea. And Burning Man is this incredible acceptance of everyone is you can be anybody you want to be at Burning Man except an asshole. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you're accepted. And nobody's, nobody's judgy. Nobody's putting you down. You, you have this freedom to be. And I think that freedom to be is important in the creative community because I think when you start in a box, you're never going to leave that box. Uh, if you can sort of see the world broadly and, and just understand that if, around every turn is going to be something to go, wow, where did that come from? That's going to be a wow effect. And you open your mind to it and don't judge it. I think you want your life's a lot better, but I also think your business ideas get a lot better too. Bob, what's the next bet you're placing? Gosh, I have no idea. I'll, I'll, I'll know it when I make it. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> okay. one of the, those people in my personal life and business life that if I hear something great, I go, go ahead, I'll take it. Uh, I'm not much of a, a uh, you know, uh, thinker about it and, you know, let's fret about it and worry about it. Uh, I think that we intuitively know the right ideas when they hit us and uh, we should seize them and move as quickly as we can on them. What are you most excited about in media right now? Mm, podcast. <laughs> Fair answer. Okay. Have to ask this question. What would MTV have been like if social media had existed when it had just started? <laughs> That's a great question. MTV was driven so much by uh, the conversation and about the camaraderie of the listeners that sort of bought into the MTV culture that I think it would have been able to start its own social network, which would have been massive. Uh, and if it didn't have its own social network, it was certainly would have been the number one topic on social, and it would have been the companion. And if you look at social today, even, it's replaced the phone. Uh, years ago, people would watch a football game together, and they'd be on the phone saying, what did they do? Look at that. That's crazy. Now they're on social doing the same thing. We're, we're sharing our comments. And for the radio, in the old days, the, the personality would be doing stuff on the air and people would call the phone, the request line to talk to them. Today, they call them on social and it provides a feedback loop. And I will say in our case on radio, it's gotten better as a result of social. I think MTV would have gotten better as a result of social to have that instantaneous feedback to whatever you're doing. So, Bob, we do a little game at the end of every episode called Kill by DIY. What would you kill in the world? What would you get rid of? I'm more of an enabler. Uh, believe it or not, I love to listen to other people. I was always a people watcher. I still am. And I'm an idea watcher. And I love just watching what other people are doing and then figuring out how I can join the bandwagon and help them along, whether it is... Uh, you know, had an idea for a sipping tequila, something so smooth you could sip it. And uh, and I found Berta Gonzalez. And my great love has been watching Berta make this thing, this huge hit and enabling her and helping her build it, but freeing her to go do it and reach her potential. And so I think rather than me making stuff, I really am one of those people that love to help other people make their ideas. When I was a young person, I made my ideas. As an old person, I help other people make their ideas. And what, what would you buy? What would I buy? Gosh, I don't know what I would buy out there. 
I'm 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 at that age, and you'll you'll hit this age one day where you're trying to get rid of stuff. So when it comes gift giving time, I say, please don't give me anything. I'm trying to get rid of stuff. But take some. My gift is take some of my stuff. So I think I'm sort of past the buy stuff. I'm 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 in that mode of let's slim down. And what would you do yourself? What's the thing that you would love to to make? Ice cream. Oh, all right. What flavor? Vanilla. What? <laughs> I don't believe that. It's simple. I I like it. Thank you for spending so much time with us and giving us inspiration and companionship. Thank you so much. And by the way, thank you for all you're doing too. And thank you for this podcast. So I took a ton of notes during that episode. One of the biggest takeaways for me is something that I think a lot of marketers overlook. We are simply filling or solving a need. And that was the one of the best and most important things that Bob said to me. Well, he talks about following the consumer, right? Like he, when we asked, how do you place your next bet? It was very simply and very directly, you have to follow the consumer. Follow the consumer and you have to fill a need. I'm solving a problem. He talked about being a sociologist. And I really think, you know, maybe more marketers actually need to think of themselves as sociologists. So it's following the consumer, but it's also being ahead of them and understanding what is that need? What are those simple needs? And then how do we get to them? And Bob, you know, Bob goes against kind of what I'll say is modern marketing. Modern marketing kind of shuns reach and frequency, shuns TV, shuns GRPs. Radio. Shuns radio, shuns outdoor, shuns all of these different types of media that actually are extremely effective when you are filling a need, when you are talking to a specific audience. And I think that Bob, you know, laid that out really, really clearly, and then talked about how he used word of mouth and how he created or at least entered into a community. All of those things are things that we talk about. But when you sit down and you look at a at a media flow chart, usually you're going with whatever your media buyer tells you. And I loved that he was talking about, you know, his GRP cap. And he was like, who said? Who said that's the cap? Why? Yeah. Who said 12 was the magic number? Who said 12 is the magic number? Exactly. And I think that more often, you know, taking it from Bob's advice, we have to question those things and really use media. And Laura, this is something that I think you and I have tried to do in our work together is use media to not just be a vehicle to tell a message, but be a vehicle to really create a swirl and a presence and punch out a brand in a way that, you know, a lot of brands are just, you know, doing their points. There are 250 GRPs a week because they're playing on the same field. But you're not, we're in a different game, folks. So I think there's huge opportunity with everything that Bob was saying, even though in some ways it sounded really traditional, but it's not. I love what you just said in thinking about swirl as a KPI. I don't know where I heard it. I don't know when I heard it. I don't know why I heard it. I don't know how I heard it, but I heard it. My friends are talking about it everywhere. I'm looking, listening, engaging. It's being talked about. And so as a byproduct, I start talking about it. This idea of creating a swirl, I think, is a really interesting 
point in that you can't create a swirl in a spreadsheet. No. You know, it, it's a really interesting concept when you think about impact in that capacity and the idea of not just being a part of the conversation, but the idea of being the conversation. And I think Bob has been able to leverage the power of brand to drive different outcomes. I totally agree. And the debate, because there is a debate. Are you investing in brand? I mean, I'm, I'm, I was part of this group and the bunch of CMOs were talking about how much are you investing in brand of your budget? How much of your budget are you investing in brand? 20%, 30%, people came back, huge advertisers, 20 on this, some people 30 on this, well, 10 because we're this and that. Brand is an line item investment. And I think this debate about brand having ROI and brand having effectiveness to your business top line growth or bottom line numbers has got to stop. Bob proves brand pulls through. It pulls all the way through the bottom line. So it's not a percentage of your messaging or your creative or your media mix. It's not a percentage. Brand is all the way through that relationship. And in fact, to your point, is the thing that is the most recognizable. And with that, thank you, Bob Pittman. Yeah. Thank you, Bob Pittman, for dropping by and giving us a masterclass in marketing. And for more from Bob Pittman, be sure to check out his podcast, Math & Magic, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Laura, hit it with the list of all of our friends and family at iHeart who have been so good to us and helped us get back on air. Big thank you to Bob, Connell, Carter, Andy, Eric, Gail, Val, Michael, Jen. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We'll see you in two weeks. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.